Did you ever get a sense of deja vu? Or do you mean deja clue? Oh, oh. And we ain't talking Mr. Body here, folks. There are too many cartoons, but they'll watch them all. The Penny and James can sort of hopefully funny cartoon podcast. Hello once again, I'm James Irish. And I'm Pembroke W. Corgi. Welcome to the Pemmy and James kind of sort of hopefully funny cartoon podcast. And we are resuming our mystery month with a look at the probably most pronounced side effect of the success of Scooby-Doo, the sheer number of mystery programs that followed in its wake. Yeah, they seem to have one of two formats. They either have the Scooby format or the Josie and the Pussycats format. It's If it's like a Scooby format, it's like, oh, there's a mystery to be solved and possibly some spooky, creepy guy that's causing problems. Or you get the Josie format where it's just a bunch of kids keep bungling into, like, the plots of rejected Johnny Quest villains. Basically, you know, this was brought about not because Hanna-Barbera necessarily wanted to cash in on their own success, although that was part of it. Yeah, they're kind of good at doing that. (laughs) But network executives were also constantly asking for the next Scooby-Doo show, or in the case of the the networks that didn't have Scooby at the time, their own mystery show to compete with Scooby-Doo. Because Scooby-Doo was huge. Yeah. Kind of mind-boggling just how big that show was at the time. And still is. Yeah. So this basically led to Hanna-Barbera becoming their own competition for much of the 70s, as the Mystery Inc. formula would be copied over and over and over. Yep. And for this episode, we're looking at one of the more obviously blatant clone shows, maybe not as blatant as, say, Goober and the Ghost Chasers. Or the new Shmoo. (laughs) We're talking The Clue Club which does at least have a few distinct differences. Like the the humans can't understand the dogs in this. The talking right. dogs only understand each other. See, also, this theme song is a freaking banger, and I don't care what anyone says. It is a very, very 70s hit. I mean, it sounds like something Baron and Strong would have come up with for a funkier Temptations track. Clue Club solved the crime. I knew it all the time. <laughs> Now, another difference is, as opposed to the frequently globetrotting clicks of kids we find in these mystery shows, the Clue Club has a consistent home base where their adventures all take place. Yep, they, they, they are the town heroes of sorts. And uh, holy crap, I want to know, what kind of money do these freaking kids have? Because they've got a full-out forensic lab with some pretty high-tech stuff for you know, 19, what, 76? 76, that would be correct. That they just let their, like, the kid's sister just play around with. <laughs> it's like, how rich are these parents, the parents of these freaking kids? And these kids are also so well-known, they have a regular contact with the local law enforcement, one Sheriff Lester Bagley. Voiced by John Stevenson. Yep, we'll, we'll talk more about him in a, in a moment. But they have two dog mascots who, as Pemmy mentioned, they don't necessarily understand. A bloodhound named Woofer and a basset hound named Whimper. 
Woofers voiced by Paul Winchell, who I know best as Dick Dastardly, but people would also know best as Tigger from Winnie the Pooh. Indeed. But beyond these differences we mentioned, these characters mostly map to the archetypes of the Scooby crew. Leading man Larry is a somewhat brainier Fred, Pretty Girl Pepper and Dorky Dee Dee are basically Daphne and Shaggy Light, and the young Dottie is a pre-high school Velma. She is a smart little kid, though. Holy crap. Now, it's these differences that are what give Clue Club its unique spin on the formula. Larry's role tends to involve interviewing suspects, giving him more direction than the typical Freddy copycat. Yeah, also, weirdly, Larry's voice actor doesn't have a Wikipedia page, I noticed, which is kind of sad because his voice is actually really good, I thought. Yeah, Larry's performed by David Joliffe, who might possibly be best known as supporting character Bernie in the high school-based comedy drama series Room 222. Nice. And yeah, he did not have a Wikipedia page, so I had to go hunting on IMDb for this. No one stopped shopping for me this time. Yeah, I noticed uh, neither him nor uh, Dottie's voice actress had uh, Wikipedia pages. Yeah, Dottie's is child actress Tara Tolby, whose other credits include some various guest parts and specials. Dottie would be her only reoccurring role. For child actress, she does a really good job. Props. Indeed. Now, for the rest of our core cast of humans, Patricia Stitch is Penny. She's known for... A pepper. Couple, a pe- pepper. But is it Penny or Pepper? I've got the Wikipedia right in front of me. Okay, Okay, it's Pepper then. And she's known for a couple movies, and that's really it. And rounding up the kids in the club is Bob Hastings as Dee Dee. Arguably the most famous of the four kids voice actors in animation circles, since he portrayed Superboy prior to this, and he would be the DC Animated Universe's Commissioner Gordon for a decade of performances. And he's a dang good Commissioner Gordon. To be sure. That is the voice that always pops in my head when I think of Jim Gordon. Mm-hmm. But you'd never think it from his performance as Dee Dee, giving him a nebbish voice, reminiscent of what I imagine a teenage Woody Allen might have sounded like. Oh, don't 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 put that on Dee Dee. <laughs> True. Yeah, Dee Dee don't deserve that. <laughs> so, as Pemmy mentioned, Woofer is Paul Winchell who we'd seen before as Dick Dastardly, we'll see many times in the future as Tigger, and he pops up in some other Hanna-Barbera productions of the time, and some other Disney ones, too. He's also one of the members of the Banana Splits. I can't remember which one, because all their names mixed together in my head for some reason. Flegal. Thank you. And, uh, which is pretty much just his Tigger voice, Uh, he's the leader of the Ant Hill mob, uh, Clyde. And he is also uh, Gargamel, which you can tell because it's it's just Dick Dastardly. <laughs> and he'd be Goober of Goober and the Ghost Chasers fame. That's right. See, I, I like him as Woofer, though, because he, he, he gives him that kind of that old Southern kind of like gentleman kind of sounding voice to him, which I think works really well for his kind of egotistical attitude. Yeah, he's got a lot of bluster. <laughs> now, his buddy Wimper is Jim McGeorge who performed Beanie in the 1960s incarnation of Beanie and Cecil, and Captain Huffinpuff in both that and the 1988 revival of the same. Yeah, we're not going to talk much about that 1980s revival. <laughs> no, no. But, yeah, he, he. I was looking at his uh, resume, and it was kind of weird, because it's like, wow, he's been in a lot of things, but 
few of them are like really standout characters for the most part. I think the one that got my attention the most, sadly, was he was uh, Dr. Scarab in Bionic 6. Oh, okay. And of course, as we mentioned, John Stevenson performs Sheriff Bagley. We've seen John before as Lazy Luke in Wacky Races and Blubber Bear 2. And as Top Cat's Fancy Fancy. And we'll soon see him as Thundercracker and others in the Transformers. Uh, the, the He was also uh, Mr. Slate on the Fun Sons. Mm-hmm. But uh, the the role I always think of first when I think of John Stevenson is always uh, Mr. Peebly from uh, Help Us the Hair Bear Bunch. What are you talking about, Badge? Oh, that's a really good Mr. Peebly. Gosh, you're way better than mine. <laughs> Do that again. <laughs> when I get my hands on those hair bears, they'll never see a barber again. The bears? I gotta get those bears, Botch! <laughs> Hair Bear, I'll get you one of these days. You'll see. You'll see. I think we're doing that cartoon for January now, aren't we? You know, I'd be cool with that. I actually like the Hair Bear Bunch a lot. Same, same. Uh, also, John, I'm also going to throw in that John Stevenson took over for uh, Paul Lind as Mildew Wolf in uh, Laugh Olympics. Indeed. He does actually a pretty good Paul Lind imitation. And to be sure, yeah. The savages. <laughs> So before we descend into our inevitable uh, Paul Lind impressions, which we always do when he sh- when he turns up, <laughs> let, shall we uh, get get on to the first mystery? Yes. The episodes all have a similar naming format: the blank caper. In this case, the disappearing airport caper. You know that name alone was probably <laughs> when I looked at just the name of the episodes. That was like one that not only did I remember being like just kind of outrageous in concept, but just that title alone was enough for me to say, yeah, this is what we're going to, we're going to look at. Yeah. So it's evening and a shadowy figure with a briefcase is walking along an airstrip to its office while a jet labeled X seven is requesting to land. But mysteriously, his radio starts messing up and his compass starts going crazy. Hmm. Indeed, the, but the pilot is able to land safely by spotting an airstrip and asks a man with an obscured face and a jumpsuit with the name tag Eddie on it, saying the person the pilot is looking for, Mr. Rogers, is held up at the factory. But he can go take a nap in, on the cot in the shack over there. Yep, and as he does so, we go to Clue Club headquarters. Kind of an odd introduction to the mystery, I think. Uh- I think they just need a brief segue for him waking up, I guess. Or they just wanted to show off how their like beepers work for some reason. But yeah, Woofer and Wimper goofing around and accidentally set off their alarm. Mm-hmm. So after that little bit of comedic business, we return to the pilot at morning. And yeah, when I was watching this, I was like, what was the point of that even? And well, that's pro- it's probably what you just spelled out, demonstrating their tech. Yeah, demonstrating their tech and probably just to give something for a time passing. But to be quite honest, they didn't need to do that. They could have just had him wake up. Yeah. So this all pays off with an interesting mystery. The airport is entirely gone, replaced with a farm complete with hay bales and cows. Just poof, it's gone. Oh, there is something about this show that I wanted to mention earlier that I forgot to. Go ahead. The producer of this show is Alex Lovey. He used to do a lot of directing over at Walter Lance Productions, doing a lot of stuff for Woody Woodpecker. 
before he got drafted into the army. Oh, you know, if he did Woody Woodpecker, that would explain why the timing on this cartoon is actually quite good. Yep. And he would end up working at Hanna-Barbera upon returning. Um, well, he'd return to Walter Lance Studios for a while, and then he'd end up joining Hanna-Barbera. But yeah, uh, he used to do Woody Woodpecker and then got drafted, and then which caused Shane Calhoun to have to take over. But Shane Calhoun is personally, I would say, the best director on Woody Woodpecker. But that's still, fair. Alex Lovey, though, was the producer on this. And yeah, that's a good pedigree to have. So I wanted to point that out. Okay, cool. We rejoined the Clue Club watching their... Uh, is that a dune buggy? I don't really know my cars. That's a dune buggy. Okay. That's a, that's a bootleg speed buggy. Speed ah, buggy. Okay. They took speed buggy's brain out and they just... You know, <laughs> What do you think you're doing there? I'm still working on that one. Yeah, you know, we're not Mel Blank or Frank Welker, so yeah. So more whimper, waking woofer, whoop de doo ensues. I had to work for that alliteration. <laughs> and the club get the call about the airport. We find out the pilot's name is Corky, and he's a friend of the gang. Yep, and they want to prove that their friend is innocent because. I, I kind of like the whole thing, though. It's like, it's like there are there's two things. One, it's like one he's lost a plane. What's the other one? He's lost the whole airport. So at the farm, Cor- Corky is insisting the airport was right there the night before to Sheriff Bagley and the club, as a shadowy figure watches from a rundown house, while airport owner Mister Rogers, voiced by Winchell, accuses Corky of stealing the plane. That's more than obvious that he is Paul Winchell, because it's just like, wow, it's like, it, it doesn't even sound that different from Woofer, to be honest. Yeah. And speaking of Woofer, he volunteers to take on the situation. Corky and Mr. Rogers are in cahoots! Because, you know, of course that's the case. Regardless of that malarkey, Bagley has to hold Corky since charges are being pressed. We also get a pretty good... Uh, facial expression out of Woofer when he sees a... when he gets scared by a cow. <laughs> mm-hmm. So Larry collects the dogs to check out the airport while Pepper and Dee Dee go to the rundown house. And our mystery figure therein is voiced by Stevenson in another variation of the voice we just demonstrated ourselves a moment ago. Which I'm happy that's the voice they went for because when I first saw him I was afraid he was going to be an Asian stereotype to be honest. Same, same. Although we're not going to be quite out of the woods for stereotypes in this episode. We'll get oh. there when we get there. Wait, you forgot that uh, before we before Dee Dee and Pepper end up looking in the uh, mansion, uh, we see Larry talking to Eddie. The uh... Yeah, I'm just getting there. Okay, sorry. Yep. Larry and the dogs do arrive at the airport, and Wimper tries to warn Woofer not to fool with an old biplane. And, of course, Woofer doesn't listen. Naturally. Larry confronts Eddie, uh, the real one, I presume, since his face is not obscured. And Eddie claims to know nothing of Corky since he was off last night, but does reveal his locker was broken into. And he and Larry surmise it could be the same guy that Corky did actually meet. Though Larry does seem suspicious of Eddie, considering he is named Eddie, and he does have the same baseball cap. To be sure... Meanwhile, at the rundown house, Dee Dee is joking about its spooky nature and its possible occupant as he and Pepper walk by and 
the very homely farmer type walks by in the room our club members pass outside. And a flash of light distracts Penny, and she spots it again in a hay bale. But Dee Dee dismisses it as a pitchfork before they enter the house. It's a small pitchfork, sir. <laughs> yeah. Maybe it's a pin. Because, you know, finding a pin in a haystack. Yeah, or a needle. Or a needle. Oh, that's why I should have said. Got the wrong word. Don't. Mm. Uh, just quit needling me. Ha 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 ha. Nothing. Nothing. The door to the house shuts behind them on its own, spooking them both. And Dee Dee pulls the, the handle off in an attempt to get out. That is a... Uh, I, I don't know what that says about either the door or Dee Dee. <laughs> so they resolve to find another way out, walking past a perfectly good open window. I'm glad you pointed that out, because I, I noticed that too. Yeah. Oh, well. In another room, Dee Dee and Penny jabber about an old taxidermized moose head, which blinks and then shouts, You don't like my looks? Get out of my house! <laughs> Bullwinkle's pissed, man. Yeah, he sure got cranky in this down period of his career. I mean, would you like someone just randomly walking into your house and breaking your doorknobs? No kidding. Now, back at the airport, Woofer is about to do his best impression of the Wrong Brothers because that dog ain't right. And as Woofer tries to convince Wimper to join in, Larry asks Eddie about a remote control unit he has, which operates that very plane. Yeah, Woofer shouldn't have watched all those uh, Charlie Brown specials. It's mm. been a bad influence on him. Yeah. Eddie demonstrates as the dogs panic, and decent hilarity ensues. Yep, those dogs get thrown all over the place, and thankfully for them, Eddie is really good at this remote control business. Yeah. Because at one point, they actually fall out of the plane, only to be caught by the plane. Mm-hmm. Larry is none the wiser to the misadventures the two canines just had. Which I'm kind of surprised by, because I'm surprised he's just not like, huh, what fell out of the plane? Oh, well. <laughs> and again, with how high up that is, he may have not been able to see. True. Now back at the rundown house, Pepper and Dee Dee come across a bedroom with an occupant under the sheets. Pepper touches the person who proceeds to vanish as if a ghost, and they bolt, getting stuck in the bedroom door and crashing through the front door. Hey, whatever works, you got out. Yeah. You just own that man a door. Mm-hmm. They find Larry and the dogs, and Woofer get some substance on Penny's on Pepper's jeans that they send to Dottie to analyze as that creepy fellow looks on from the house yet again. Larry was just chilling at the haystack waiting for them. Back from commercial break and back at Clue Club HQ, they're finding from Dottie's computer that Wilkins Airport is nearly broke. They reason that the insurance from the plane makes him a suspect. Not a bad way to go, especially when you see your, if you've watched enough Scooby-Doo. Yeah. Larry had checked with Bagley, and a robbery was indeed reported by Eddie. But Woofer, of course, thinks he's the actual crook. They also discuss Corky's role in all this, and Pepper thinks he's innocent because he has curly hair. <laughs> My initial feeling when I heard that was I couldn't believe they found a way to work backwards from the original Daphne. <laughs> 
she's at least most more proactive than Daphne is. Yeah. But I, I think it's, you know, the, though so, uh, Larry's like, oh, that's a good reason or it makes some mocking gesture. But you know what? He, he should support that idea considering that both Larry and Dee Dee also have curly hair. So To be fair, Dottie interjects at this point that the compound is rubber patching cement. She'd know what it was doing at the farm if she were there on the field, she claims, but Larry's having none of it. Nope, she's not old enough to be going out and risking herself on the sites like they are. Because seemingly you have to be 14. Yeah, this is one of the things that bugs me about this show. This girl is smart and resourceful enough to be a forensic scientist. And she's only a few years younger than these teens. But nope. They insist she must stay behind every time. Yep. Not seemingly the thing is not until she's 14 and she's currently 13. <sighs> Give them credit. They're being protective of the youngest member. Yeah, but it just gets old after a while. But I suppose that's what happens when you're watching these things back to back to back. And they weren't meant to be watched that way in the first place. Also, to be honest, I wouldn't be surprised if that was also a censor note because child endangerment was not a very happy thing that a lot of shows liked back then. So Fair. Fair. Uh, teenager endangerment was fine. Child endangerment, not so much. Anywho, the club decides it's, it's time to head back to the farm and also chat with Eddie at the airport again as Mr. Rogers tails them. That felt weird typing that and it feels even weirder saying it. It also was a weird animation of him just kind of going, <laughs> setting up from from in that, like, driver's seat. Yeah, but considering who's voicing Mr. Rogers, other this Mr. Rogers, can you imagine Paul Winchell being the actual Mr. Rogers? <laughs> it's a beautiful day in the neighborhood, a beautiful day for a neighbor. Won't you be mine, Pooh Bear? Won't you be mine? <laughs> Not bad. Thank <laughs> you. It's like, you guys aren't happy? Drat, drat, double drat. <laughs> Back from commercial at Wilkins Airport. And not Wilkins Coffee, because yeah. you don't want to piss off Wilkins Coffee. Yeah. But at this point, the farmer type, Mr. Brock, is very much being a Wontkins. <laughs> insisting he won't sell his land to Rogers. And he's very upset. But then again, some kids came in and broke his door. So I'd be pretty upset if I was him too. Yeah. But this is very familiar territory for Scooby-Doo veterans. This was kind of part of the plot of the Space Kook episode almost a decade ago at this point. Yep. But the twist is Brock believes the planes curdle his cow's milk. That's a... You know, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> I have heard that spooking a cow can give bad milk, so. Mm -hmm. uh, well, I guess cow kip. I guess I almost called it cow kipping, but cow tipping is crueler than we first thought. Hey, that's the national sport of Oklahoma there. Eddie is telling them this when Pepper interjects that Rogers is the same person who owns the missing plane, which is news to the rest of the club. Yeah. And just then, Dottie pages them with an update. Eddie used to design planes for Rogers and worked on the X-7. Hmm. And this prompts Larry to want to take another look at the pasture. 
Which is where the plane was last seen, of course. Yep. And finally, they noticed something. Some weird burned spots. Yeah. Although we should also mention Rogers is still tailing the club at this point. That's true. He's being all spoopy. Yeah. But yes, just as you were saying, they find irregularities in the grass. Spots where heavy things sat or burnt spaces. Probably points of landing. Hear that? Those are some crazy cows they got. Must be the spicy beef. Yeah, I I do not want to see those cow pies. So the search continues as Larry orders the mascots to start sniffing, while Pepper and Dee Dee pass by a scarecrow that becomes ambulatory. And that's the thing, one of the things that bugs me about this show, the monster aspect tends to only appear about two-thirds of the way into the episode and is never mentioned again. Yeah, I kind of want... See, this is one of the things I kind of wonder about this show, but I haven't found anything to prove it. I kind of wonder if this show was meant to be more mystery-focused than, like, Scooby-Doo, but then the networks are like, no, you need to have some Scooby-Doo element in it because all of these monster scenes feel really tacked on. They do. They do. So the chase begins, and just as quickly, we're back to the dogs. I I, I want to mention the scene with the mosquito. <laughs> we're going to get there. Right. We're not quite there chronologically yet. Oh, sorry. Because uh, Woofer and Wimper are sniffing every random thing represented via comic book thought bubbles. Seemingly there's a lot of good things there, but no clues. More comic business as Woofer literally kabongs into a tree. And, well, plot-wise, it doesn't add up to much. But we go back to the Scarecrow chase, and Penny and Dee Dee hide up a tree. And that's when a very thirsty... (laughs) A very thirsty uh, mosquito comes by. Out, weirdly cartoonish for this show. Mm -hmm. Spots Pepper's ass and freaking beelines for it. Indeed. This is the 1970s version of Parental Bonus, folks. <laughs> I gotta admit, I was surprised that happened to her and not Dee Dee, to be honest. Also, you can tell this mosquito is local to the farm, because it sure loves that dairy air. I couldn't help it. <laughs> By the um, way... This chase is occurring in broad daylight outside where the echoes of all the screaming Pepper and Dee Dee are doing is bound to attract attention. There's not a single thing spooky about this, which just reinforces Pemmy's theory. Yeah. Which is kind of sad because if my theory is right, I would have been okay with them doing a more just mystery setup and not having the monsters for once. It would definitely have allowed it to stand apart from Scooby a lot better. So, Dottie pages Larry to tell him things he already knows about Brock, and there's more jokes about how she can't join them. This episode is just feeling padded. Yeah. Meanwhile, Dee Dee and Pepper lose the Scarecrow via hiding in the hen house, and Pepper breaks a fresh egg on her head. Eventually, the group reunites, and Larry thinks he knows what happened, and has Dottie call all the involved parties. She arrives with the sheriff, and the club aren't amused. 
Well, somebody had to show the sheriff how to get there, despite the fact, you know, he's already been there. Yeah. So, Larry and the rest of the club spell out that the whole thing began with an inflatable hangar and a phony runway. I, I kind of feel like Larry just expects her to do this, because every time he kind of scolds her, but then he's just like, all right, just stay out of sight, or just like, whatever. <laughs> now, here's my big question. When the radio was being messed with, we see the compass go haywire too. Is that actually possible? I'm not knowledgeable enough of airplanes to say that, but I mean, if he had like a magnetic field or something, I imagine that could happen. Yeah, unfortunately, we don't get an explanation to the how of it. Other than he just managed to do it. Yeah. So, so the point is, eventually, Eddie is the culprit, and he hid the plane in an inflatable hay bale covered in real hay, which presumably is the same one the blinking light was coming from, but the blinking light never gets mentioned again. No, and also that's one hell of a big haystack. Yeah. Like, I don't think anybody makes haystacks that huge. Though I, I do kind of have to give them credit. I do like the explanation for the inflatable hangar and putting out the fake, like, roadway and the lights. It's so insanely <laughs> involved, for lack yeah. of better words. It is. But at the same time, in addition to the scarecrow not being addressed... We, the stuff in Brock's house didn't add up to much. All the extra gags just don't seem to do much to s support the story. I just wasn't very happy with this episode. No, it's definitely probably the weaker, probably the weakest episode of the series, to be honest. We'll see if things improve after this commercial break. Sunday Afternoon Mysteries will be back in a moment on the Cartoon Network. On the next Pemmy and James podcast, Supper and Succotash! Sylvester the Cat, like most Looney Tunes antagonists, just can't catch a break. But unlike your Wily Coyotes or Yosemite Sams, the sheer variety of situations he found himself in made him feel like the unluckiest Warner star of them all. In two weeks, we'll explore just how much trouble he got in when not chasing Tweety or Speedy. We now return to Clue Club on the Cartoon Network. So, our next episode deals with vanishing things with another method of transportation. We go from planes to trains. And... But we don't go to automobiles after this. <laughs> oh. Now, that would require us to review Speed Buggy. Or require us to get Steve Martin and John Candy. Oh, you know, been planes, worse. trains, and automobiles. Yeah, could have been worse. I could have said, uh, could have been worse. I could have said Turbo Teen. Oh, yeah. That's a show that, that I'm not looking forward to. Or Camp Candy. Hmm. So let's see if things improve here. We open with a full moon, a howling wolf, and a set of elevated train tracks amidst the mountain landscape. Good first impression, actually. Yep. Sets up the atmosphere right away. Mm -hmm. And a shadowy mm -hmm. figure walks along some tracks, and we're now joining the club as they prepare for a picnic. We don't even have the mystery quite established yet, but there's a purpose to this. There is indeed a purpose to this. I just didn't see it at first. 
we get a little added personality for Larry in this as he's trying to steal goodies out of the picnic basket when when uh, Pit Pepper's not looking. Hey, Dee Dee, these sandwiches are delish. <laughs> I like how he's like Dee Dee's even kind of like, look, don't do that. Pepper will get mad. He's like, no, nah, here, have one. They're great. Of course, uh, Wimper rats them out. The effect of her shouting has to be seen to be believed. So I imagine <laughs> if you're watching the YouTube version, you've already seen it via our splash screen. Yeah, that is definitely the splash screen picture, because holy crap, it's only one frame, but man, is it a frame? Mm-hmm. I wouldn't be surprised if Lovi drew that himself. <laughs> so the shadowy figure is next spotted coming out of a tunnel not far from where the picnic is actually taking place. See? I told you there was a connection. You the, being the audience, that is. Yes. Dottie's congratulating herself for having the idea when Bagley pops in to ask what the kids are doing in a restricted area. Which seemingly they didn't know it was restricted. Yeah. Turns out the police are trying to keep everyone and their mother away from a shipment of $10 million worth of gold bars and a train sandwiched between two guard trains. And... It goes through a tunnel, and wait a second. Yep. Something's not right here. Train one comes out. Train three comes out. Train two does not come out between them or at all. That's an amazing uh, disappearing act. What do you do for an encore? Well, it ain't pulling a rabbit out of the hat. <laughs> I've seen how that works for Bullwinkle. Yeah. Moose. So the club has stumbled headfirst into their next case. Which makes this a pretty effective setup sequence, I think. Yeah. In the tunnel, the club and the sheriff are searching, and the sheriff is flummoxed in that gentle, let's not let this whole thing get out of hand way. I mean, you can tell he's upset, but he's still being gentle about it around the kids. Well, he, he he's the kind of authority figure. He doesn't want to, you know, make them panic. Indeed. A banker named Mr. Landers appears angrily insisting they find the train at once, not listening to a word of the club's defending of their friend. Suspect number one, I reckon. Well, to his credit, he lost a lot of freaking money. I would be kind of pissed, too. Yeah. A humbled sheriff leaves the search to the club and drops Dottie off at the clubhouse. A $10 million theft has occurred, and the only cop around is lugging a 13-year-old out of the way of some teenagers. Only in kids' media, folks. Or a really small town, seemingly. Yeah. I, I do like how they just, like, how that line just gets added, even though Dottie's not with him. It's like, thanks for dropping Dottie off on home. It's just like, you just had to make sure to give her a reason to get rid of her, huh? Mm-hmm. <laughs> So the dogs are sniffing in the cave, and Woofer is explaining his theory of mass hypnosis being part of the crime as our duo go about their comedic business. And gets scared by Wimper, who just pokes him. But of course he wasn't scared. He's got kung fu, action, reactionary, boy. Yeah, I don't think he was reading the Hong Kong book of kung fu. <laughs> That's a different dog entirely. Indeed. Also, do you think Paul Winchell is channeling Foghorn Leghorn with this voice? Possibly. I say, boy, I say. <laughs> Meanwhile, Dee Dee spots a gold nugget, which they decide to bring back to Dottie to analyze. 
Turns out it's fool's gold, while Woofer continues his, his hypnosis brouhaha. To which he uh, supposedly has Whimper under his command, but actually doesn't. Right. Dottie just directs them to a ghost town, Dobson City, on the other side of the mountain as the most likely place of origin of the fool's gold, while the hypnosis gag reaches its logical conclusion with Whimper fetching a chicken and eating it because he wasn't told not to, and then fetching a pie, and Woofer getting caught with the pie by the pie's baker. Uh, I don't know about this lady, whoever she is, but if I, I, I'd be like going over to like the Clue Club's house and going, what the F is with your dogs? They ate my freaking chicken and tried to steal my pie. She looks only mildly perturbed by this when she mm. should be pissed. Maybe she's used to these two dogs' antics by now. That's still a whole freaking chicken. Yeah, and, a, and, and a whole pie that she probably spent all day baking. Well, they didn't get to eating the pie. She stopped that. But it was still in his hands. True. Anyhow, Larry also wants to talk to the train dispatcher, and Dottie again makes her play to get involved and again gets shut down. Poor Dottie. Yeah. Amidst the sound of what Foley artists must have assumed computers and control doodads sounded like... The dispatcher, one Mr. Harper, is demonstrating what his job entails, showing off a bit with some close-call train controls. Yeah, pretty impressive, and pretty relaxed about that. Yeah, I bet he would have loved the Pachyakun games. There's a joke I think only you, I, and Chrissy will get. Yep. So Wolfer, of course, instantly assumes that Mr. Harper is the culprit. He also immediately assumes that he can just control this just like anybody else. Mm-hmm. So, while Woofer's starting to investigate the controls, the dispatcher, Mr. Harper, claims to know nothing of the disappearing train and its gold, but directs them to Sam Kiley, who was the conductor of that of those trains and a friend of his. Hmm. And meanwhile, Woofer is making a mess of things. Yep. So much so that in order to prevent there from being a big wreck, uh, Whimper has to go and pull the plug. Seemingly that entire huge device only has one single plug. Well, it's still the practical solution, at least. Yep. He's a smart little basset hound. On the way out, Pepper notices a collection of western relics on the dispatcher's wall. Harper and his friend Sam have traveled to seemingly every old western town in the region, he claims. Hmm... Interesting. That's a hobby for you. <laughs> also, at this point, the club notices the mess things have been made, and a ashamed woofer sort of owns up in his doggish way, but Harper dismisses the mess as a problem, and woofer's tune immediately changes. Yeah, the guy's just like, yeah, this it's fine. I can clean this up, no problem. I'm just like, dude, you're really calm about this. I would have been even if I could have fixed it instantly, I still would have been pissed. Outside, Dottie pages the club. She found Lander's bank is under federal investigation. Yipes. Yeah, that's... That's definitely a reason for him to be so eager to get that gold back. Makes me happy I stick with Chase. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, she exposits more about Dobson City. It was a gold rush town that was abandoned about a hundred years ago. And the ghost town certainly lives up to its reputation. 
Yep, this thing it looks as looks like rundown ghost town as much as you possibly can. Yeah, I'm I'm just waiting for a a waterfall polka barrel, courtesy of Bunsen and Beaker. And of course, Dee Dee and Pepper go into the rundown theater, and oh no, the monster of the day hijinks ensue with a. Yeah, but before that, we do get a quick gag with the Marquis saying, Blazing Cactus. Ah, yes, I actually forgot about that. So yeah, as you were about to say, we get our one of our two monsters in this episode, and it's Paul Winchell voicing a Native American ghost in the most stereotyped fashion you can think of. My Oklahoma heritage is crying. <laughs> yeah. This vocal job was routine and sadly acceptable for the time, but today, no. No. Some chase comedy ensues while Larry and the dogs encounter a piano that's playing itself in a saloon. Were player pianos a thing a hundred years prior to the 1970s? I, I, I would say so, because I've seen those used as gags in... Lots of old cartoons, so... Yeah, but the dogs don't even consider it being a player piano. They just immediately assume it's haunted. Actually, I, I gotta look that up. I'm curious, when was the player piano originally... While you look it up, I'll keep describing the scene. Their fears are backed up by the sound of footsteps from upstairs, walking past them and out the door, as illustrated by... Larry and the dogs following the sound with their heads and the door animating. Wow, you will not believe how old a player piano is. How old? As of 1876 in Philadelphia, three working devices were exhibited that that between them contained almost all the components of the final player piano. 1876, add 100 years, you get the year the show debuted. What an eerie coincidence! Amazing. Yeah, I doubt they even knew when they were writing the episode. The first publicly sold one was in 1896. But, okay. But yeah, the original creation was 1876. Wow, that's even older than I even thought they were. I thought they had been like 1920s or something. Yeah. Damn, that's impressive. So at this point, an old prospector type named Crocker shouts at Larry to get out. They're after my gold! <laughs> yeah, when Larry mentions the stolen gold to Crocker, the coot thinks Larry's talking about Crocker's own gold. A lot of help he is. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, makes Whimper, I mean, makes Woofer just straight up pass out. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, the chase in the theater is continuing, and Dee Dee and Pepper take a page from the Shag and Scoop playbook via a costume room, where they dress up as... Modern police officers? Complete with a motorcycle. Where did they find a modern at the time motorcycle in this freaking in this freaking rundown theater? Let alone the modern uniforms. My suspension of disbelief flew out the window at this point. I can accept the out of nowhere costume changes with Shaggy and Scooby, because they're generally silly characters prone to slapstick. Pepper and Dee Dee are more grounded characters. To their credit, it is at least a change of pace of having the like female character get into the goofy hijinks. Part it of is, the show. and 
they lampshaded with the costume room, but, you know, that just raises the question, since the town is supposed to have been abandoned a hundred years ago. Am I being pedantic? Probably. But I don't care. <laughs> it is a big question mark, though. And kids are, at least in theory, smarter than this. Yep. Still, it kind of works, and there's some clever gag play with the violations they rattle off. Neatness code. <laughs> Seemingly neatness does count. <laughs> and we next see the duo racing out of the theater to find Larry and Wimper carrying the fainted woofer. All I have to say is if neatness counts that much, I don't want an officer to ever come into my room. I'm getting a ticket right off the bat. Same. Same. So, moving along, the club spots a track car that's in good shape, and they use it to get on the tracks towards a tunnel. But before that, Pepper spots another golden-colored nugget. It's given to the dogs in a bone-shaped container to be sent back to Dottie. And at this point... Normally, I would grouse again about them leaving Dottie behind, but there's a bigger problem at stake. Why are they sending those poor dogs to the other side of a mountain to get to their home? Sadly, this is a fairly common occurrence in this show. Is mm. It's finding evidence they want Dottie to uh, examine and having the dogs take it back to her. It happens almost every episode. Those dogs are seemingly really fast. <laughs> yeah, we should put them in a race against the Roadrunner. Which is especially impressive for a basset hound. Yeah. So, into the tunnel the club goes, and they split at a fork in the tracks. Pepper won't go without a light of her own, sensibly, I might add. But Dee Dee finds a lantern that still has oil in it. Just happens to be there, or was dropped next to them, surprisingly. Yeah, I'm very disappointed they didn't point out how suspicious that was. That's okay. I'm still trying to figure out how Dee Dee has a bright banana yellow, like, Sherlock Holmes deer hunting hat, but, you know. Yeah. Anyhow, another shadowy fellow follows the Pepper and Dee Dee duo, and once they spot him, another chase is on. Now... As much as I don't want to see that stereotyped Indian ghost again, couldn't it have just have been that same ghost? Y you know, maybe it was a different guy this time. Fair. Meanwhile, at Clue Club Central, Dottie is fitting Woofer for a dress for a party, much to Woofer's chagrin. And we get some comic business with another dog named Spike. D does Spike appear in any other episodes? I think... He does a couple of episodes. He's just kind of like the annoying dog next door or something. Okay. Okay. But I, I, I do love that this like trend of in cartoons that like if you have a bulldog, he's always named Spike, seemingly. Mm hmm And we get a cute scene with Dottie giving Woofer a stake for his trouble. Which is good since he was pretty humiliated by yeah. Spike seeing him. Now if only they had tossed in a throwaway line that Dottie was doing this while they were waiting for the gold to be analyzed, this would have fit better. Yeah, but I don't know. It was still a cute segment. It's still freaking adorable, so I will... Uh, I'm kinder to it than similar scenes in the previous episode. We'll put it Also, Woofer gets a lot of crap thrown on him, so this is nice to see, like, something nice happen to him for once. Yeah. Though I, I do love that scene. It's like, 
And here, and this is for you, since because I love you, and you just and you just hear Wolf go, "Oh, I love you too." <laughs> yeah. like, oh, that's that's really adorable. Back in the caves, Larry finds a fire and a man in an old timey train conductor outfit working over the fire. Meanwhile, Dee Dee and Pepper find a minecart and they reenact Donkey Kong Country to escape the shadow. Pretty good plan to you know, distract him, though I kind of wonder how they got out, considering they can't see anything now. Mm-hmm. Yep, they eventually wind up outside the cave where Larry has brought in the conductor, who is, in fact, the previously identified Sam Kiley. Uh, I want to know, did Larry, like, apprehend this guy? Because, <laughs> I mean, he he's not happy to be there, but he willingly came out. Did Larry, like, kick his butt or something? So, Dottie's ordered to to gather up all the other involved parties, and we get some more business with her finding a way to come in for the conclusion. And Larry again says, "Okay, just stay out of the way so I don't see you." Yeah, he he he, he seems bemused by it at the very least. Like I think he just expects her to do it at this point. He just yeah has to act like he's authority. Though I don't understand why they brought that Crocker guy. He has nothing to do with any of this. I know. He's just there to say, my gold! My gold! After my gold! (laughs) The long story short is, it turns out Kylie and Harper were in cahoots, melting down the gold bars to look like it was freshly mined, and they had made the train disappear via a newly laid section of track. Which... Is pretty impressive to do at such a quick and fast way. And with only two people to dig out the new tunnel. And uh, got rid of it just as fast. Mm-hmm. And nobody noticed this other tunnel somehow when they were investigating it. Anyhow, Woofer says he knew it all along, but Wimper protests that he had changed his mind about it. But that doesn't stop Woofer. I don't think it ever does. Nope. So, Pammy, I caused a little controversy with you when we were talking about this yesterday when I said I thought this was the weakest Hanna-Barbera show we'd seen thus far. Eh, I don't know if I'd say it's... Mm. But it's a very high slope to have jumped down from when considering amongst the Hanna-Barbera shows we reviewed are Wacky Races, Top Cat, Scooby-Doo Where Are You, and Jellystone. That's a high bar. Uh, Pack, Drack Pack and, and the Mumbly Show are also higher, at least for show. me. Uh, I don't know. I think I'd rather watch... I think I like the show a little bit better than Drack Pack, but that's just my personal opinion. Fair, fair. I mean, if we it, there's no reason we have to necessarily agree on this show. I just feel it's... This is where I can mark the decline of Hanna-Barbera starting, because... This show just feels so paint by numbers to me. It, it really is. Gosh, wait until you see like, oh gosh, wait until you see something like the new Shmoo or something. Um, but I don't want to call it the worst. Or Goober and the Ghost Chasing. <laughs> I don't want to call it the worst of the mystery shows though, because A, I have not seen the new Shmoo or Goober and the Ghost Chasers yet, and I will take your word for it for the time being, but we will review them eventually. There is one mystery show I have seen that I would consider far worse, The Amazing Chan and the Chan Clan. Yeah, that was bad. Actually, that one's probably worse. Actually, I'd say that one's worse than the two I mentioned. Yeah. 
And, oh, oh, the problems with that show. We will get into that down the line as well. But like you said, this is still better than The Biscuits. Yeah, or Wildfire, or um, Laverne and Shirley in the Army. And we will be looking at that last one in February. Yikes. Yeah, pray for us, folks. <laughs> still, despite this, Clue Club actually proved pretty durable in terms of its run on CBS. Because oh. the se- the episode segments would be sliced down and incorporated into the Skatebirds as just Woofer and Whimper. Yep. And they would continue in that format when Skatebirds was broken down from an hour-long anthology into two half-hour anthologies. And the Robotic Stooges part would be the one that kept the Woofer and Whimper segments. Oh, that's a show. Mm-hmm. Can I ask one question in relation to the Robonic Stooges? Sure. Am I the only person that thinks making cartoons based on dead people is morbid and weird? Um, no. Okay. No, you're not. Especially so soon after Moe's death. Yeah. Like, I think he died literally like two years before that or something. Yeah. But after that came and went, uh, the Clue Club would be reran on Sundays on CBS the following year. And then eventually it'd get reran on the USA Cartoon Express, which is where I saw it. As, I, as did I. And, you know, Cartoon Network would put it in its mystery blocks on Sundays, as would Boomerang. And the most recent resurfacing of the Clue Club was on Jellystone. Yes, and that was like a, a great weird gag. <laughs> Oh, sure, that gag be fine with us. <laughs> so that wraps up our mystery month. But we will be revisiting these shows. In fact, we may make this a yearly thing. I'd be cool with that. There's definitely a lot of them to work with. Indeed. And not all, and not all by uh, Hanna-Barbera, thanks to Ruby Spears. Yeah. And uh, some other companies got in on the act, too. Witness the Muhammad Ali show. Yep. Actually, I got a question. Do we count the Josie and the Pussycat style shows in this? Maybe that should be its own thing. Because I, I know, like, Cartoon Network and a lot of people just kind of throw all of those style shows into the same. But to be quite honest, I don't, I don't, I always see, like, stuff like, you know, Speed Buggy, Josie and the Pussycats, and Jabberjaw as separate because there's not really a mystery. It's always, like, some big bad villain that you find out just right off the bat. Yeah, I, I think we'll look at those shows on their own. Just because the, those those three, at least, are certainly notable enough to do outside of this as it is. Whereas things like Goober and the Ghost Chasers and the, the Amazing Chan and the Chan Clan and the new Shmoo aren't. Yeah. Ooh. Ooh. Yeah. I just remembered one that Ruby Spears did that I have yet to find episodes of, and I'm not looking forward to when I do find episodes of it. Uh-oh. Rickety Rocket. Oh, no, 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 no. I agree with this. No. All right. In fact, I'm going to keep getting these no's out of my system as we go out to restock the breakfast cereal. See ya. No. The companion James to the sort of hopefully funny cartoon podcast. 
The preceding podcast is a co-production of the Mighty Monkey Corporation and Artificial Orange Studios. The theme song is written, composed, and performed by Shawn Michael Smith.